Now today is Palm Sunday, and I usually like to do a special Palm Sunday message, but the Lord has sovereignly ordained it that through our verse-by-verse teaching of the Bible, we've arrived at a passage that just fits. So we're going to do that. Revelation chapter 5, we're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Well, this picks us up right in the middle of the heavenly scene that we saw in Revelation chapter 4. John, for the first chapter, saw a vision of Jesus Christ, glorified, who told him, I've got something to show you. And it starts by dictating seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor at that time. Then in the beginning of chapter 4, he's told, come up here, and I'm going to show you what's going to happen after this. And he is in the throne room of God. And whereas Moses had a view from beneath the throne of God, Ezekiel had a view from the distance, John was in the throne room of God, and he looked upon what God's scene is in heaven with thunderings and lightnings and 24 elders. And we looked at it in in great detail. We believe that the 24 elders are representative of the fact that the saints of the old covenant and the church are in heaven for the remainder of the story of Revelation, that the rapture has taken place as symbolized by verse 1. If you disagree with that position, I think you'll still enjoy the Bible study today. But that is what we've, we've concluded as we've gone through it. But here things begin to happen. Whereas before, it was just, this is what it looks like. Now, there's some action taking place. He sees the Lord, the one seating on the throne, God the Father, holding a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. It's written on the front and on the back. So, this is a very large scroll because you would have had to go and write on the back, which typically wasn't done unless you really had a lot to say. So, this is an important scroll. Sealed seven times. You know what a seal is, right? It's not the animal. It's where you pour the wax. You fold a paper or you roll up a paper. You pour a little bit of wax on the the seam. And then you take a ring or something and you press the seal down into it to hold the paper shut. So, this has seven of these, probably along the top at different stages of the scroll. Because we're going to see he's going to break one seal and unroll it a little bit. And then break another one and unroll it a little bit more. So that kind of helps you with the picture there. And he's holding it. And then a mighty angel says, Is there anybody who's worthy to take the scroll out of the Father's hand, break the seals, and open it? Many people have speculated, and I think it's fair, that this is Gabriel. Because in the book of Daniel, Gabriel told Daniel at the end of the book, Seal these things up. And it could be that this is a callback to what's going on. Whether or not it's Gabriel is entirely irrelevant, but the reference back to Daniel is important. That he said, Daniel, seal these things up because the things you just saw a vision of are not about to happen yet. But what we see here is they are about to happen and the seals are going to be broken. And there's a number of theories that people have put forward about what exactly is this scroll? I mean, we kind of obviously know what it is, but many people want to try and look a little deeper and see what this might be. The first, I'll just give you the two most common ones. I kind of disagree with both, so I'll just put them out there. But the first is that this is a title deed. People will pull up Roman uh, records of people that would have a deed to their farm or even in Hebrew culture where they would seal it seven times. That if you owned land, it was especially set aside for you. And that this would represent the title deed of the earth, which Adam forfeited in the Garden of Eden. He gave over what God had put as as his dominion and gave it over to the devil. And in order to redeem it, you're going to need the Lord to break the seals and open it up. Uh, Difficulty that is the Lord is the one holding it, not the devil. Also, it's really difficult and I don't think a great line of Bible study when you want to try and find a piece of history and try to say that's what this means if you can't take it from the text naturally. There's some obvious ones, right? Like we know what a Pharisee was, so that helps us. But, you know, you can find one version that says, seal the title deed seven times, another one that doesn't even mention that. So that's a possibility. I do believe that Adam forfeited the rule of the earth, and Satan's called the god of this age and the prince of the power of the air. I don't know if that's what he's getting at here. Anyway, number two, this is like a last will and testament. And the various Caesars would have their last will sealed with seven seals. And people will call that up. But once again, it doesn't say that. And, you know, the Lord's not dead here. <laughs> so 
It's not like his last will is being, being given out. So there's some historical backing, but I, I'm always suspicious of people that have some obscure historical document that finally tells us what this passage means, and nobody throughout history could ever have known what it meant unless you had this piece of history. I think the obvious one is just kind of the general one. This scroll represents the final plan of God to judge and redeem the world. And those that hold to those other views believe the same thing. I just don't like to push it quite so tight. So we're going to open the seals, and every seal is going to be a new act of judgment during the tribulation until the return of Jesus Christ. So what this represents is the Lord finally stepping in and putting a stop to wickedness and redeeming the world. This is the plan. It's been sealed for eternity past. Daniel maybe sealed some of these things up. Is anybody ready to enact these things? Are we ready to see the Son of Man come riding on the clouds? Can anybody get this party started? And every generation has had moments like this one that Gabriel puts out. Is there anybody anywhere who's able to fix all this? You know, there's whole industries now of people pointing out problems. They don't have many solutions, but they're good at pointing out problems. And the thing is, that's because there's something inside of us that knows things are not as they should be. Romans 8, 22 through 23, tells us that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. You ever watch the news and groan inwardly? As we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We know what's coming. It's heaven is coming. But we're not there yet. And we look at the things people do and we groan and we say, is anybody going to do something about this? Death causes us to feel that way, doesn't it? When you lose someone and it, you know, my son has finally entered his Star Wars phase, so he's been watching those movies. And, you know, there's a line in there, death is a natural part of life. Don't grieve for those who move on. What a sick thing to say. Death is not natural. Why do we lose our minds when death comes? Why can death totally transform a person? Because it's not the way God made it. And you sit, you've sat at a funeral and you think, Lord, how long, right? Or disasters that happen, hurricanes, tornadoes, pandemics. And you say, wow, this is really not as good as it gets, is it? We're waiting for something to come. Corruption causes us to feel that way. You know, when you see somebody in public office just blatantly get away with something. And like, someone's got to do something. Don't we have people for this? Well, they're all corrupt too. That causes us to go, ugh. We groan, right? Injustice causes us to do that. You see something that is just so unfair and not right that's being perpetrated against a person or a group or even an entire nation. Sickness. You ever get sick and start praying for the rapture? Lord Jesus, now would be great. My, my very next breath would be taken in, in glory without congestion, Lord. Reminds us of Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, when it says the children of Israel were crying out under the lash of the Egyptians. And it says their cry came up to God in heaven, and the Lord took notice. And this is the place also in which Judah found itself at Passover, the year Jesus rode into Jerusalem. They were groaning under their oppressors, groaning under the state of their nation. If you know your Bible history, Israel had been one nation, it was split up under two nations because Solomon's son was an idiot, but also it was of the Lord to bring judgment to them. The northern kingdom was scattered by the kingdom of Assyria. The southern kingdom was scattered by Babylon. And the top ten tribes of the northern kingdom never really returned. The southern tribes were able to come back, but only a few of them, and it was hard going under the Persian rulers to try and rebuild their nation. Then the Greeks came in, and we talked about this in the book of Daniel. Judea was fought over. By the Greek kings, the Ptolemy dynasty in Egypt, the Seleucid dynasty in Syria, fighting over Jerusalem to the point where one king, Antiochus, began to systematically eradicate the last vestiges of, of Judaism in Jerusalem. He outlawed the Sabbath. He caused them to shave their beards. He burned all the Torahs. He closed the temple, set up an image of, a, of, a, of Zeus and of himself and began to sacrifice pigs in God's holy place. This led to a rebellion, and they were finally able to kind of, sort of, cast off Greece. 
And you got what were called the Hasmonean kings, who finally have Jewish kings over Israel again. Then 75 years later, one of the members of the court of the Hasmoneans, a guy named Antipater, conspired and connived with the Roman Empire, who before had been a defender of Israel, to come in and deliver the kingdom over to Rome. And then Antipater was declared the king of the Jews and had a son named Herod. You've probably heard of that guy before. Rome came in. Rome built a fortress right on the corner of the temple called the Antonia Fortress so that they could look down into the temple, see what was going on just in case things got a little out of hand. Marching through the streets with their, their shields and their spears and their crested plumed helmets with the idols carved into the shields. Forcing people to use coins that bore Caesar's inscription. Levying taxes, and you've got all these corrupt Jews going along with the Roman oppressors to overtax their own people and getting rich off of them. They're seeing the younger generations and those from other nations casting off Hebrew culture, walking around in togas dressed like Greeks and Romans, speaking the Greek language, not even reading Hebrew any longer. And then you get to Passover, where more people would fill the city than ever before. And you know, you get a lot of people like that together where they're supposed to be remembering when God delivered them from Egypt, their last oppressor. And they're saying, don't you remember when the Lord delivered us and those Egyptians were drowned in the sea? And then you hear, chong, 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 outside the door. And people shouting commands in Latin outside the door. And you think, Lord, how long until you deal with these guys? And the prophecies of the king to come began to be more and more important to these people. And they say, what happened? Remember back in the day when Judas Maccabeus and the other guys, they cast off that Greek king. When are we going to do When are we going to rise up again? And the zealots were going around with swords in their cloaks, ready at a moment's notice. The Sadducees are trying to keep the peace and put down people that are causing any sort of trouble so that they don't lose their place. And then, in the middle of all that, you hear a shout coming from outside the city. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. What's going on out there? And they go out and they see a man riding on a donkey, surrounded by a multitude of people, shouting Hosanna, which comes from Psalm 118, which is a psalm of deliverance, with its refrain, Save us now, O Lord! And they said, Yes! Because they knew Zechariah 9.9 had prophesied, the king is coming, riding on a donkey. And the next verse says he's going to bend Israel like a bow to destroy her enemies. So people started to get excited. So they started to take off their cloaks and put them on the, on the ground. The king is too good to walk on the dirt, even on his, his beast of burden. And then they began to break off palm branches. Why? The palm branches were a symbol of the Maccabean rebellion when they cast off Greece. So you see, they've got these, and they start to wave them in the air. Save us now. They're not talking about sins, y'all. They're talking about getting the oppressor out of here, setting our kingdom back. It's like if we started marching in three-cornered hats through the streets. We're remembering the last rebellion. When we cast off the guy last, I'm waving the palm branches. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were saying, is anybody worthy to deliver us? Is there anybody out there? Who can help us? And this is what every great story has, isn't it? I mean, consider how, it's interesting. There's a guy named Ibram Kendi who's a politician and all sorts of things. But he's got a thing where people need to get away from savior narratives. Because that's, you know, that's oppressive and this and that. Well, you can say that all you want. But what have been the most popular movies for like the last 20 years? Superheroes. People showing in with magical powers to save the day and get rid of all the bad guys. Even Westerns back in the day, right? Somebody's going to show up, the fastest gun in the West, and he's going to put a stop to all this. Even ancient legends, we could finally defeat Troy if Achilles would get off his butt and fight. Waiting for the hero, waiting for the savior. And here's what I'm going to tell you. That's a good impulse. That's a heavenly impulse. That's a Holy Spirit impulse in your heart looking for a savior. Now this can be a bad thing, when you start to look to regular old people, when you start to look for somebody who can help you and get you out of a jam, and you start to choose somebody that maybe is less than worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, if you know what I mean. This can range even from a small scale, like just picking a bad boyfriend. 
Picking somebody that's going to really take care of me and going to really get me what I need and I don't really know what I'm doing. So you pick some guy who's going to treat you poorly. Right? Or this can be even to the raising up tyrants. You ever wonder how some of these guys got into power? It's like, who in the world would vote for Joseph Stalin? Right? Who would put Mao Zedong in charge? Well, they did. Why? Because the people had been downtrodden for so long and are looking for somebody, anybody, who's going to finally stand up for us. So you pick this guy. It's a trap, which is why the psalmist tells us in Psalm 146, verse 3, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. That longing for a Savior. And then also realizing that nobody's worthy to really be the Savior. That leads to the despair that we see here in verse 4, where John begins to weep. Is anybody worthy? And they go, we need somebody. But then they look up in heaven, on the earth, under the earth. There's nobody. Nobody in heaven, no angel, no, no dead ascended spirit. Nobody on earth living right now. Nobody beneath the earth. There's nobody even who's died or, or any person that was not saved that might have been able, just in case, we'll double check. There's nobody. And so John begins to weep. And we as a people kind of will get this at times of our life. I'm done. I can't get my hopes up again. I can't get excited about another political candidate. I can't get excited about another girl coming into my life because I keep on counting on these people to save me and fix me and it's not working because they're all broken, they're all corrupt, and they're all just as messed up as I am. Which is why everybody wants our stories now. The hero's got to be flawed and broken, right? Why? Because we're cynical. We think everybody's like that. Don't tell me there's a hero. I've tried and I've been waiting and there isn't anybody. As we weep, because there sits the scroll with its seven seals, the thing that can fix this and solve this. And if somebody could just reach up and take it, then it could be fixed. But we know there's nobody. So the question remains, who is worthy to bring about the salvation we all know that we need? Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne." John is told to weep no more because we found somebody. We found him. <laughs> and he says, well, who could this be? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. Who was David? I think you know this. He was the king. He was the great king of Israel. He says, somebody has come back like Aragorn, right? The crownless again shall be king. He's prevailed. He's conquered. Whoa, I got to see this guy. And he turns and looks and he sees a lamb. And the word there is actually the diminutive form of lamb in the Greek, meaning a little lamb, a little one. As it had been slain, what does this mean? There's a lamb standing there. Its throat is cut open and its wool is stained with blood. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the conqueror, the root of David. This is Jesus Christ. Because what did John the Baptist say in John 1 verse 29 when he saw his cousin coming to the Jordan? Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. With seven horns, a horn represents power in Scripture. And seven is the number of completion. It represents omnipotence, all power. The seven eyes has represent the Holy Spirit. Seven spirits is the way that Revelation in its heightened language discusses the one Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, we believe theologically, proceeds from the Father and the Son. He has omniscience, all knowledge, because the Holy Spirit fills and knows all things. And he is able to approach the throne and take the scroll, which is the first Step of unlocking everything that's going to happen at the end of the world. The world is waiting for a Savior. And there is one. But there's only one. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth, who is called Christ. On Palm Sunday, the people were waiting for a king. And rightly so, because Zechariah 9 promised that. That the king is coming. When you see him riding on a donkey... 
and he just so happened to have raised somebody from the dead a few days ago, that's your king. The fulfillment of the covenant that God had made to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David ruled in Judah and Israel, it was one kingdom at the time, for seven years in a place called Hebron. Because there was still resistance from people that were loyal to Saul, the, the king before that. But when that king was actually assassinated by his own people, David was not happy about that, by the way. He was a friend of Saul and a friend of Saul's family. But at that point, they, they, the kingdom is united, so they're finally able to take the stronghold Jebusite city of Jerusalem. When they conquer Jerusalem, David's kingdom is basically complete now. He's consolidated his rule. He has become king as God had promised. And he says, the next thing I'm going to do, Lord, I'm going to build you a permanent temple here in Jerusalem. Because you're in the tabernacle. It's a tent. You're moving around. You deserve a holy temple. And God told David, David, I love your enthusiasm. But this is not a job for you. Why not, Lord? Well, David, you've killed an awful lot of people. And the Lord is not angry with David for that. But he's saying, but if somebody who's going to build my temple needs to be consecrated even above normal men and a normal righteousness. So what does God say to David? But here's what I'll do for you. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty that is going to last forever. You will have a son who will sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. We call this the Davidic covenant, the promise God made to David. Your line will never pass away. 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to go read it. That's who they were waiting for. We're waiting for a king who's going to rule forever and ever and set up a kingdom that Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all these guys have prophesied. They said he'd be riding on a donkey. Here he comes. So they're a little excited. This man would have to fulfill the entirety of the scriptures related to the Messiah, the son of David. Every now and then you hear somebody say, I saw, um, I think it was a YouTube short the other day where somebody's like, Israel thinks they found their Messiah. And it's some guy, I'm like, it's not the Messiah. They say he might have done a miracle. I'm like, Jesus did a few of those, you know. But there's a whole mess of scripture you've got to fulfill and have true of you if you want to even be qualified to be called God's Messiah, the son of David. And they actually reference a couple of these here in the book of Revelation. I'm going to read them for you. We're going to do a lot of Old Testament reading today because the book of Revelation does so many callbacks. You've got to know your whole Bible. And especially at the end, right, you know, a good piece of music, the final movement, is going to bring together the themes from everything. If you love a good Broadway musical, they bring in all the themes, right? They're kind of singing every song over again. That's what Revelation is. So what does he say, first of all? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Very cool, but what does that mean? Genesis chapter 49 Verses 9 through 11. This is when Jacob, who's about to die, is putting a blessing upon each of his children. And this is what he says to Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is amim, meaning people other than Israel. Binding, verse 11, his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. That was written thousands of years before Zechariah wrote his prophecy about the donkey, and before Jesus Christ came. They said that Judah is going to be, even though he's the fourthborn, he is going to be the tribe that the king comes from. He's going to rule forever and ever until every nation of the world is serving him. And then he says he's going to bind his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Jesus rode into Jerusalem riding on a what? A donkey. And in the Last Supper, Jesus told him, I am the vine and you are the branches. Wash his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The blood of Jesus was shed on the cross. And he's also going to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. And he will have the blood of the nations upon him. He's saying, this is the lion of the tribe of Judah we've been waiting for. Also, he calls him the root of David. This is a very interesting Old Testament theme that you see. And the revelation kind of intensifies it. Because the Old Testament talks about the branch of David, but Revelation talks about the root. 
Right? He's not just the branch. He's the one that all of this came from. Let me read this from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Meaning that, that tree. So I referenced Lord of the Rings a minute ago. The whole idea of the dead tree that is going to come back to life when the king comes back. He pulled that from the Bible. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. He says that dead tree called the, the dynasty of David, a branch is going to come out of it alive again. But the book of Revelation, it goes, not only that, he's the root, man. It all comes from him in the first place. He says that he will reign as king, and Israel and Judah will dwell securely. They don't even dwell securely today. And the name will be called the Lord is our righteousness. And is that not exactly what Jesus did? He has not caused us to do our own works of righteousness to be saved. He's given us his righteousness because he's the root and the branch of David. Isaiah 11, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. Who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. That's the Amim again, the other nations. Of him shall the nations, Goim, Gentiles, inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. Do you see all of this? The line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. The branch of David. The root of Jesse. He's going to be king. All the nations are going to serve him. He's going to provide righteousness to the world through the shedding of blood. And he's going to come riding in on a donkey. Y'all, only Jesus Christ qualifies to be that. He was born of Abraham, the one that God chose and said, you're the one. Through you, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. He was born of Isaac because Abraham had another son named Ishmael. But the Lord said, through Isaac shall your seed be called. He was born of Jacob, or his name was later changed to Israel, not the twin Esau, because he said the older shall serve the younger. Jacob prophesied on his deathbed that the scepter would not depart from Judah. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. The root of Jesse will be the one to subjugate all nations. Jesus is of the line of Jesse. The branch of David shall bring salvation and righteousness to the world. Jesus is of the line of David on both his mother's and his father's side. Matthew and Luke give two genealogies, one going through Mary, one going through Joseph, and they both pass through David. So he's double qualified. Jesus is qualified in his flesh to be the Messiah. But not only that, man, he's qualified in his deity to be our Savior. I love that. You, you probably heard it. It's uh, the S.M. Lockridge sermon, That's My King. One of the lines I love in there, he's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. Do you see this here? His seven horns representing all power. What did he say in Matthew 28? How much authority has been given to me? All of it. You see that the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit, are his eyes. Because Jesus is one with the Father and one with the Spirit. They are in that triune relationship with each other. He didn't just do good things. He came down from heaven. That's why he's able to distribute the righteousness of God. Because the psalm says no man can ransom the life of another because his own life costs so much. But if you have the power of an everlasting life, then you are able to eternally provide life for every other person. He's the only one that can usher in an everlasting kingdom because he's never going to die. So when people cried out for Jesus on Palm Sunday, they were thinking in terms of politics. Let's get Rome out. and Jesus can be our new king. But when they said, save us now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they said more than they realized. He's like, you're right, but you don't know how right you are. And in fact, that's what made Jesus weep, because they really didn't get it. Jesus is the only one who can save us. By virtue of who he is and what he's done, the promised Messiah, from the very beginning, it's him. It's only Jesus. And I've talked about this many times. But can I just remind us, guys? As Christians, we're all about Jesus. That's the most important thing. We talked about it in the seven letters, right? You've left your first love. The love, that personal affection for Jesus. Stop trying to take the Christian religion and sand it down into a philosophy that anybody can accept. If you do not die to yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, there's no salvation for you. But if you do, 
There's some blessings we're about to read about. Verses 8 through 10. So, the lamb took the scroll. It has begun. <laughs> and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, these are the guys with the six wings and the four faces, and the 24 elders, I believe representing the Old Testament saints and the New Testament church, fall down before the lamb, each holding a harp. That's a non-specific stringed instrument, perhaps an acoustic guitar. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you. That was the question. Is anyone worthy? They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Every character we've seen so far, with the exception of God the Father, of course, falls down to worship the Lamb who represents Christ Jesus. So much for the idea the Bible doesn't think Jesus is God. A second ago, they fell down before the one seated on the throne and said, Worthy are you. And now they're falling down before the Lamb and saying, Worthy are you. Later on, John's going to fall down to worship an angel, and the angel's going to pop him upside the head and say, get up and don't do that. <laughs> the lamb took the scroll, worshiping him with song, with stringed instruments, with harps. That's where the whole thing of angels playing harps in heaven comes from, by the way. And also these golden bowls would represent the prayers of the saints. Psalm 141, verse 2 says, let my prayers rise like incense. My worship like the evening sacrifice. And especially here, these prayers are the prayers we were talking about before. The how long, O oh Lord, prayer. The God, when are you going to do something about all this prayer? The is there anybody out there prayer? They're offering them because they finally found him. Now what about him makes him worthy? That he was slain. This is the key feature to understand about Jesus. Because this time of year, I guarantee it, you're going to find a lot of people that are going to be saying, well, it's Easter, let's talk about Jesus. And they're going to reference some of his teachings or some of his miracles or how he loved the poor or whatever. But they're going to leave out the fact that he died on the cross. Or they're going to say ignorant things like, it's really a shame that Jesus died so young. Who knows what he might have said. Or they'll say, it's a shame that Christians focus so much on that death and resurrection thing. He said so many other great things. First of all, we focus on everything Jesus did. Don't get it wrong. But second of all, this is the most important thing. The most important thing. Calling him the lamb who is slain. What does that even mean, right? Maybe some of y'all are like, listen, church isn't really my thing. You're calling Jesus a lamb. I don't get it. Let me explain it to you. This calls back to the story of the book of Exodus, the first Passover. The Lord was about to deliver the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Okay, we've already mentioned that a few times. Nine times he poured out plagues on the land. He thought the coronavirus was bad, man. The rivers were turning into blood. Frogs were everywhere. Flies and gnats. Boils. The crops were dying through locusts. There was icy, fiery hail from heaven. There was darkness that covered the land. And Pharaoh still said, I'm not letting you go. So the Lord said, one more plague. I'm going to kill every firstborn son in the land of Egypt. You say, why would God do something like that? I'll tell you exactly why God would do something like that. Because that's what Pharaoh had done to the people 40 years before this. 80 years before this, actually. He said, there's too many Hebrews. Go into their houses, take all their firstborn children, and throw them into the Nile River. This was not God being nasty. This was absolute, perfect justice. So what, he's just going to kill everybody? Well, there's a way out. There is a way out. If you go back and you read it in Exodus chapter 12, he said, take a lamb. Take a lamb. You with me? And kill it. Take its blood and spread the blood over the door, the door on the sides and on the top. It almost makes the shape of a cross if you want to think about it that way. And he said, and then when I send my angel of death, my destroying angel, to go and kill the firstborn. When they see the blood, they will pass over you. That's where Passover comes from. And that's exactly what happened. And so, when we say the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin, you also can think of all the sacrifices that you read about in the Old Testament, where a lamb was killed in order to cover sin for a time. 
But Passover is the main reference. How do we know this? You're going to need to turn with me on this one. Luke chapter 22. And yes, we have time. Luke chapter 22. This is Thursday night. Hebrews reckoned days from sundown to sundown. So as far as they're concerned, this is Friday. We do it from sunup to sunup, right? Midnight to midnight. That's not how they did it. So they're celebrating Passover. This is Friday after Palm Sunday. There have been crowds. There's been accusations. There's been flipping tables over in the temple. Now it's just Jesus and the twelve. They're sitting down to supper. What supper? Passover. They're eating the meal that commemorates the story I just told you about Exodus. And they would eat lamb. They would eat unleavened bread because they had to run out of Egypt so fast they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. Bitter herbs, which represented the bitterness of slavery. They would drink wine. It was a very ceremonial meal. But here's Jesus in Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. It's just him. Just him and his friends. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. John's writing about that. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. If you look at the other gospels that narrate this a little more closely, this is the third cup that would be ceremonially drunk during this meal, which is called the cup of redemption. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new deal. FDR's got nothing on this one, you guys. A new deal, not by works, but by grace alone. And that bread, you want to you know, have your mind blown a little bit? The ceremonies that developed in between the Testament that you don't read about in the, old, in the book of the law, we know from history. The bread that he broke, here's how the ceremony went. They had a bag full of those square unleavened bread, the matzahs, right? There were three of them. They were wrapped separately so that they were in the same bag, but they were not touching one another. That's called the echad, which means one. So three in one. Anyway, they would reach in, pull out the second one, and break it, and pass it around, and then wrap it in a white cloth. I mean, come on. The second person of the Godhead, the Son, Jesus Christ, whose body was broken. And that, can you imagine Jesus doing that? Reaching in, pulling the second of the three, breaking it, passing it, and said, this is my body, and this is my blood. He's saying everything that Passover was looking forward to, everything that we're commemorating tonight as we remember, we're looking forward to what is about to happen tonight, Jesus said. When my blood will be shed and my body will be broken. And just as the Passover in Exodus delivered you from Egypt, this is going to deliver you from sin. He was the king that had come, but they had missed something. That you can't just bring in the kingdom if the fundamental problem is still there. If the very thing that kicked us out of the garden has not been dealt with, what good is a kingdom? So the very next day, Jesus was indeed crowned. But he wasn't crowned with gold. They took a crown of thorns. These soldiers, they heard that he had been calling himself the king of the Jews. So when they take him back to get him ready to be, be executed eventually, but first of all chastised and punished, these cruel men took a thorn bush and ripped off a string of thorns and twisted it up and says, here's your crown, and shoved it on top of his head. Thorns. Why thorns? Because what was the curse that God gave to Adam? No more is the ground going to be easy for you, but thorns and thistles it shall produce. It was the crown of the curse pressed upon his head. And they beat him. And they spit in his face. And they took rods and they whipped his back open. And they took the, what's called the flagellum, where there was a leather thongs that had glass and rock and bone on it. They would have ripped his back open. Then they would have taken him up to the mountain. They would have stretched his arms out on a wooden beam and they would have nailed into his wrists and into his feet and hoisted him up where everybody could see him stripped naked, bloody with a crown of thorns on his head. Where he died. Died for everybody to see. And everybody was mocking him, but when he passed away, creation groaned. 
There was an earthquake that shook the world. Darkness covered the whole earth because creation itself knew what was going on. And they lamented. His blood was shed and his body was broken. But do you know what? The blood of the lamb was a ransom. It wasn't just a tragedy. It was all on purpose. This needed to happen because that's what you and I deserve. Our sin, all the wickedness we've done, deserves to hang upon a Roman cross and die of blood loss and asphyxiation. The blood and the Passover was a mark that death was to pass that house by. And death will pass you by if you are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You say, how do I know that Jesus can deliver me from death? Because on the third day, he delivered himself from death. He rose from the dead. And now he offers that same thing to you. That's why he's called the lamb that was slain. And that's why being slain makes him worthy to take the scroll. One more verse about Jesus being the lamb comes from Isaiah. Remember, this comes from hundreds of years before Jesus. All right? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Haven't we? Isn't that true? Have you done it all perfectly? Well, no, but nobody has. Exactly. We've all turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Isaiah prophesied that there's going to come a man who's going to be like a sacrificial lamb and take all of our sins on himself. The book of Revelation points to Jesus and says, it's him. He is the one you're looking for. He is the one you're waiting for. And if Jesus has borne your sins, you are no longer condemned. You have salvation. Saved from what? From hell. Why would God send somebody to hell? Give me a break. You know what you deserve. You know what's in you. We don't all let it out, thankfully, but it's in there, isn't it? But all those who believe on him, who repent. What does repent mean? It's a simple word. Get rid of the old life and follow Jesus and put all of your trust in him as your savior. And you'll have a glorious destiny, not just of life, but what kind of life is this? Back in Revelation 5, you've made them a kingdom and priests and they shall reign. Royalty is your destiny if you are in Christ Jesus. The people on Palm Sunday, they wanted a political king. Not realizing, as we often fail to realize, that the problems we face are not ultimately material. The terrible things that are being perpetrated against children, that's not a material problem. The corruption and the injustice we see, that's not a material problem. All manner of wickedness that we see perpetrated across our nation, it's not a material problem. It's a spiritual problem. Which is why they're calling out for the king, but he goes, that's not the highest priority right now. The priority is to save your soul. Because then who cares who's king? When you die, you'll be in heaven forever. And that's what the Christian must remember. When all the world is chasing after these material solutions, we have been commissioned by Almighty God to hold on to the truth of what's really important. Even when they start to say, you're out of touch, you're missing it, and you're going to fail in this generation, we say, there's only one thing that matters, and it's Jesus Christ crucified. And the same is true for you. If you say, I I need help. I'm broke, and I'm about to lose everything. I'm sick. I don't know how much longer I've got. My family's falling to pieces. I'm not not ready to lose my house. Yes, God wants to help those problems, but the first thing that must be asked is, are you born again? Have you been saved? Because once that happens, the rest of it is just a journey to the end. And only after this atonement had been purchased could the kingdom truly come. We still are waiting for the kingdom, which is why the 24 are rejoicing, because they're saying, here it comes. He had to die first that he might be worthy. But now that he is worthy, he stretches out his hand and takes the scroll. Remember when the disciples said in Acts chapter 1, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus basically told them to mind your own business. Well, here in heaven, 
He reaches out his hand and they go, he's about to restore the kingdom to Israel. Everything that Old Testament prophesied is about to come true. Every cry out to God is going to be satisfied by him. Jesus conquered by laying down his life to destroy the source of the problem. And we know that he did because he rose again. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, a lot, you might say, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The scene expands. Not just the 24 elders, not just God's angels in waiting, but innumerable myriads of heavenly angels celebrate and praise the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb, God the Father and God the Son. And because the Holy Spirit's, the Holy Spirit are the seven eyes of Christ, by extension, the Holy Spirit as well. Because he is able to get the party started to inaugurate the beginning of God's plan, to judge and redeem the world. Every prayer that said, Lord, will you finally deal with these wicked people? And every prayer that said, Lord, will you save us? Is about to be answered. And all the creatures that before were found to be unworthy bow their knee before Jesus. Remember, they looked in heaven, the earth, under the earth. They couldn't find anybody, but they found Jesus. And now all those unworthy ones bow their knee and acknowledge him as Lord. We found our Savior. Isn't that the best part of any story? When the battalion rides in at the last minute, when the, the last stronghold is about to be overwhelmed, but here come the reinforcements. Or when the last second touchdown is scored, you've got that last second play, well, we need 99 yards, and then you get it. Or when the hero swoops in to save the day, celebration is absolutely in order. Heavenly worship is not quiet, guys. Amen. Now, there's going to be a moment later where there will be a moment of silence in heaven, but it's not going to be out of reverence for God. It's going to be in shock at what he's about to do. But when they consider what the Lord has done, they shout and they celebrate and they proclaim before the Lord. They fall on their faces and they write new songs to praise him. You know, this is what was going on on Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic title, which means we want this guy to be our king, which means if Rome finds out about this, that we've got this guy that we kind of want to be our next king, we're all going to be in big trouble. So the Pharisees in the crowd said to him in Luke 19, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Shut them up. <laughs> but he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It was on this day, of all days, I'm going to be glorified. So if I shut up my people, the rocks are going to cry out. And isn't that what happened at the cross? When all of creation should have been lamenting what happened, but they were dancing on Jesus' grave, the earth itself shook. The rocks cried out. So many want to silence the praise of the Christian. Sometimes it's just out of embarrassment. Other Christians just wish we would keep ourselves to ourselves and shut up because our music is lame and the world doesn't like it. Or out of anger because they don't like what we have to say about their chosen lifestyle. I wish you all would just keep that to yourself. Or out of disdain. They don't really have a dog in the fight. They just can't stand you. Ridiculous. To be mocked, to be shamed. Why would you want to do this in public? But why? I'll tell you why. Because in Genesis chapter 3, when the sin had been committed, a curse was proclaimed upon the world. But God told Eve in Genesis 3.15, you're going to have a child that's going to crush the head of that old serpent. I'm going to put all of this to rights. Don't worry. I'm going to fix it. And then he brought it to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah and to David. And now... We found him. 
the one we've been waiting for since literally the beginning of history, has come. He has managed to handle the deepest problem, offer the solution for free, and change our destiny forever. And you want me to be quiet? Come on, man. We won't be quiet. We've got to celebrate and shout and let the whole world know. See how heaven honors him. Heaven itself honors him, not just as a man, but as God, very God, the name above every name. The problem, Christians, in the world is not politics or poverty or your own personal matters. It's the fundamental sin at the bottom of all of it. Not only does it ruin everything in life, doesn't sin ruin life? You ever happy you lied? You ever happy you cheated? You ever happy you lost your temper? No, you're not. Sin ruins life. It's deserving of damnation and hell. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The good news is that the Lamb of God has come, taken the wrath of God that you deserve on his own shoulders and offering his blood covering to you freely today. You've been waiting for the solution. You've been crying out for God to save. You've been watching that TV and say, what's going to be done about this? Atheists love to say, well, why, why doesn't God intervene in the world? Y'all, he did. He sent his son Jesus to die and rose him from the dead. Well, why hasn't he stepped in to save yet? Because he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. There are so many that might be saved. Our sons and daughters that have strayed from the faith. Our mother and father that never knew him in the first place. Our countrymen that are running wildly towards hell with reckless abandon. The Lord is merciful and kind. He's offering salvation freely. Repent. Renounce that old life. It's not working for you anyway. Trying to chase back what you had when you were 20 years old. You didn't even like it then. And waiting for the Savior, and his name is Jesus. So today, join the heavenly chorus. Cry out for him to save you, and you will be saved. And for those of you that have been saved, I think a little celebration is in order. Would you agree? Yeah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord.